Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of Canadians at some point or another have suffered from depression and sought out treatment. Now, a controversial new study has poked a very large hole in long-held notions around depression and antidepressants. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey joins me to discuss how widespread depression is, what this new study says about the relationship between antidepressants and depression, and what it could mean for people currently getting treatment or those seeking it out. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Sharon, the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting health measures that were brought in brought forward kind of a renewed focus on the notion of mental health. You know, we had business closures and people in isolation. We had people working from home and all these other byproducts have had people feeling isolated, lonely, anxious and depressed. And and I wanted to focus on that last one there, the, the idea of depression. Taking a step back from COVID for a second and looking at it more broadly in the Canadian context, do we have a sense of how many people are suffering from a diagnosis of clinical depression? Well, Dave, that's kind of a, that figure is kind of hard to pin down. The, the estimates are, you know, everywhere from one in eight to, to one in four people will experience clinical depression or major depression at some point in their lives, you know, depression that's serious enough to to need some kind of treatment. Um, you know, major depression, they, it's described as depression that people feel, you know, most days and that lasts most, most of the day and that lasts for at least two weeks. And, you know, that makes it really hard to function, you know, to work, to go to school, to sleep, you know, to concentrate. It really affects the way you feel and the way you Think and act, and and when we look at what impact COVID has had, um, I came across a report from the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and they said that in 2021, so last year, one in seven Canadians reported symptoms of moderate to severe depression, which was um, up from like two percent pre-pandemic. So. It certainly seems to have had an impact on how people are feeling. Wow, that's a that is quite a lot of a lot of people there. Um, you know, to give people a bit of background on on this notion of of depression as a mental health condition, when was it first discovered or first coined as a diagnosable condition? Yeah, well, when it was first kind of considered, you know, a diagnosable condition, there, you know, there's a long, really long history going back to to the Greeks the notion of despair. I mean, Hippocrates named it melancholia. The term major depressive disorder and in psychiatry is known as MDD. It was first introduced really during the 1970s, but but it really took off when major depression was officially became part of the DSM in 1980. And the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So, it's sort of the official catalog or Bible of psychiatry that, that doctors use to, to diagnose mental disorders. So MDD became officially a, a, a diagnosable disorder 
um, in DSM-3 in the third edition of the DSM back in 1980. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to that period or, or even sooner, what's been the going theory about what causes depression? Yeah, well, you know, the older theories really stressed, you know, early experiences, right? You know, that what happened in childhood mattered in a big way. Um, as Marnie Wedlake, she's she's an assistant professor in Western University School of Health Studies, she explained it to me this way. She said, you know, before the 70s, there wasn't a huge amount of, of interest among psychiatry in sort of that biological approach to understanding depression, you know, that brain-based approach. But then the focus shifted, you know, as, as she and others explained it to me, in the 60s and 70s, you know, psychiatry found itself in a bit of trouble, right? There were these other um, disciplines, you know, psychology, um, social work. They were doing the same sort of talk therapy, but they were doing it for a lot less money. And at the, other, the same time, so these other branches of medicine, other subspecialties were becoming more and more sophisticated. You know, they're kind of making, their technology is playing a larger role and they're making these kind of, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of psychiatry. And then at the same time, we have sort of the older uh, drugs used in psychiatry, the benzos, benzodiazepines like Valium and other drugs. They're becoming more popular. So the focus kind of shifts to the idea that, you know, human distress is really rooted in some kind of brain dysfunction that, you know, those early experiences and other factors really matter less or kind of secondary, you know. And then from that, it comes this concern that we've now taken, you know, normal human responses to distress in our lives, you know, the response to the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, you know, the loss of a relationship or marriage suddenly becomes sort of pathologized, right? That there's, there's yes, you're feeling distress, but there's really an underlying brain chemical imbalance that's happening here, and we've got a drug to fix it, kind of like, you know, as Marnie has described in her class as Prozac for everyone. And and that focus, when that focus shifts to sort of this brain chemical imbalance theory, um, it's sort of like, you know, a boondoggle for the pharmaceutical industry because they said, you know, said we have a drug to fix that imbalance. And and we, the public, thought, okay, this explains a lot. You know, I'm feeling this way because, you know, I've suffered some kind of distress, but really the root cause is I've got something going on in my brain and there's a medication that can help it. And I want it. You know, I'm feeling despair. I want it to go away. You know, please make this stop. And so, I mean, you talked about in the 60s and 70s, the benzodiazepine um, treatment. When did we make the switch to the medication that people may be more familiar with now? I, I know you mentioned Prozac for everyone, this idea of of antidepressants kind of as as a main treatment. And, and what was it assumed that they were doing to alleviate the symptoms of depression? Yeah, I mean, when we look at antidepressants, you know, amphetamines were really big in the 1950s, right? They were they were used to treat so-called neurotic depression, right? They were said to help with everyday emotional problems and distress. And amphetamines were really kind of like the precursor to antidepressants. Um, the first real class of antidepressants were tricyclics, and those were the first class of drugs that were really developed and sold, you know, specifically as antidepressants. And, you know, you, you asked what was it assumed that they did? Well, they were thought to be working again on the brain. They were fixing some kind of underlying disease process. And how they, why they believe that, it was, it was observational, right? We give these drugs to people, they become, you know, less distressed, less agitated. So 
therefore there must be something going on in the brain. And then, you know, boom, things kind of take off from there. In the case of SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are really the most commonly prescribed, I think, I think still antidepressants. Those are drugs like Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft and, and their generic, you know, cousins or copies. The assumption was those drugs worked on the brain by increasing serotonin levels in the brain. And serotonin is um, a neurotransmitter, right? It's, it's a chemical that kind of carries signals between nerve cells in the brain. And it's thought to have, you know, positive influence on our mood and emotions. So that drug class, again, the assumption was it's doing something. It's fixing some kind of underlying abnormality in the brain. And that theory, this kind of long-held notion that there's a chemical imbalance and that these this class of drugs is working to rebalance things chemically in your brain, that theory was kind of had the doors blown off it recently with a new study. And and what did this review of the research indicate? So, this review was a uh, an umbrella review, so it's a, re- a review of reviews, and what they did was they looked at um, more than a dozen like meta-analyses and other really you know high-level studies, and they found no support for the theory that depression is related to low serotonin activity or concentrations in the brain. You know, they looked at I think six really key areas of research into serotonin and depression, into that theory. So, you know, for example, they looked at studies that compared the levels of um, a serotonin and its its breakdown products in people's blood or in their cerebral spinal fluid. And they found, you know, no difference between people with depression and people without depression. Um, they looked at whether can you make people feel depressed by, you know, artificially lowering levels of serotonin. And you can do that by depriving them of tryptophan, which is this amino acid that you need to make serotonin. Again, when they fed them diets deprived of tryptophan, it didn't make people depressed. You know, it didn't produce depression in healthy volunteers. So they could find no consistent evidence whatsoever to support the association between levels of serotonin in the brain and depression. We'll be right back. So this this notion that we've kind of all assumed has been true, at least in the public, turning around and, and trying to wrap your head around the fact that, well, if depression isn't caused by a serotonin imbalance, why am I taking SSRIs for my depression? It has to be kind of a controversial notion. Like, what are the researchers saying about their findings and the resulting controversy from asking people to to shake off their preconceived notions? Yeah, well, it it was really interesting. I mean, when the study came out, it was you know, headlines, international headlines. You know, curiously, here in Canada, it was mostly ignored. But in a nutshell, what the researchers saying is that the drugs, the implication is that the drugs don't work the way people have been told they work, and that essentially, you know, the chemical imbalance theory, which is so ingrained, or has been so ingrained in popular culture, um, really there's no evidence, there's no proof that it's real, that it's kind of a myth, and that it was this, you know, drug company marketing ploy to get people to take meds they don't need, and, you know, their accusation is that psychiatry is complicit because, you know, they didn't do enough to kind of correct that false narrative. Um, 
And, you know, there's still drug companies that you look in their leaflets and they talk about the chemical imbalance theory. And I found websites from, from agencies in Canada that refer to, you know, we think it's a chemical imbalance hypothesis. So it's still very much, you know, sort of ingrained in our thinking that, that, that these drugs work by doing, fixing this chemical imbalance, but apparently there seems to be no evidence to support it. And what about the psychiatric community or the medical community? Is this a surprise or does this confirm something they already knew? And if they already knew it, how come no one was disabusing us of this notion? Yeah, that's where the controversy, it's it's really interesting, but, you know, many of the critics of the paper, and, the, and this paper was produced, led by researchers at um, University College London, and it was published in Molecular Psychiatry, a, a nature journal, so, you know, very much uh, a journal, but it said, you know, many of the critics have said, well, you know, this is much ado about nothing, that psychiatry, you know, long ago we abandoned any notion that depression has come down to this, you know, kind of single neatly packaged cause, you know, this theory of chemical imbalances. And they said, you know, they argue that we never, you know, endorse this sweeping theory of depression, um, that we've always looked at sort of the biopsychosocial model that includes, you know, things that are happening psychologically and socially and other factors. You know, and they talk about, and it's true, there are more hypotheses out there, things really recently like the gut microbiome, you know, bacteria in our guts might they be playing a role in our mental health but you know what what has been really riled up is is that the authors of the study really went further in in opinion pieces and interviews after the study was released by questioning you know the use and the effectiveness and the safety of antidepressants altogether are they saying that antidepressants don't work or are they saying they don't work the way people think they do and perhaps we need to rethink how they're being prescribed yeah, I, I mean, the study wasn't designed to look at whether antidepressants, but in this case, the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which actually are said to work by keeping high levels of serotonin in the brain. You know, their study didn't look, wasn't designed to look at whether those antidepressants work or not. So what they did, though, was they extrapolated that they said, okay, we found no convincing evidence that depression is associated with or, or caused by lower serotonin concentrations. So they extrapolated that to suggest that if the drugs are said to work by increasing serotonin, but they found no evidence of a connection between low serotonin and depression. So what are the drugs doing? Um, and from that, they say there's, you know, there's two things here at play that if people are led to believe depression is caused by an imbalanced brain chemicals, that might make people feel kind of pessimistic, right? About ever overcoming depression. Oh my God, if this is something in my brain, that's never going to be fixed. And the other argument they say it can make people decide to stay on the drugs for the long term, you know, which can lead to to dependence and, and other problems. We know it's very difficult to get off these drugs. Um, they can cause all sorts of problems, including problems with sexual dysfunction, which can linger post withdrawal, you know, for for some time after they come off. So there was you know, this concern that people are need to really rethink and reexamine why they're taking these these medications. If the authors of the study said, you know, these drugs are known to have kind of a numbing effect, right? They 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 numb both negative emotions and, and positive emotions. So, you know, people think, okay, I'm benefiting from that numbing. You know, it is numbing the the negative stuff that's happening, and for them that might be 
perfectly legit and, and, and that's what they want. Um, but other people might say, wait a minute, you know, you told me I'm, this is correcting a chemical imbalance in my brain and now you're saying there's no evidence of it. I need to really stop and examine why I'm taking these medications. But again, we have to be so careful, right? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, other people have said mild depressions are depressions that tend not to need treatment, right? They get better with time and with support and, and or psychotherapy. But really severe depressions, you know, many psychiatrists said to me, they need treatment. They won't get better on their own. So we have to be really careful, right, about about lumping all depressions into one category and saying, you know, one thing that, that applies to, to all forms of depression. Mm-hmm. And, and what about for the, the people out there who say, well, I, I've been taking antidepressants and they actually do lift my mood. They actually do bring me out of this kind of deeper despair. Is there concern that, that this could make people avoid treatment for depression, medical treatment? They do need? Yeah, I mean, that's it. There's a concern that people will abruptly stop their meds for one thing, which is very dangerous. It can, you need to really do it slowly and gradually under care, right? Uh, I think Marnie told me it can take a year or longer to come off these these meds safely. Um, and so there's that concern again, right, that you just said that 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 people people will come off these meds all at once, especially the people who most need them. You know, the problem, too, is also we have to look at what's available in our Canadian system, which for mental illness, which isn't much. You know, people describe it as quite miserable. You know, we can get maybe a few sessions of group therapy, of cognitive behavioral therapy, but we, we might have to wait a year for it. And if people don't have the money to pay to see a psychotherapist, if they don't have the money for an you know, an hour a week for, for who knows how many weeks and they can't function and they need to be able to go to work to pay the rent. You know, often the only option is, you know, Paxil or Prozac or whatever their doctor is hand, you know, handing out. You're kind of stuck. What is the, the pharmaceutical industry saying about this? Have they commented on this study? Have they come out and defended their products saying, you know, we've, we've, these have been prescribed for decades and they work and people are happier and healthier? Well, you know, to be honest, I haven't really talked to them. Um, they're certainly still selling these drugs. I mean, the SSRIs, I think the number was quite staggering. It was 47 million prescriptions dispensed by retail drugstores in Canada last year alone. Um, now, those are new and, and refills. And, you know, and, and, and the whole question then becomes, so if they're not working the way we were believed to work, how are they working, right? Um, and there's, there's no one really knows. You know, one, one emerging theory is that the drugs might work through this, this process called neurogenesis, so that the formation of new neurons, new brain cells. Um, there was this really interesting piece in nature about how a major life stressor, you know, might lead to cell death in the hippocampus and, and that antidepressants might kind of reverse this brain shrinkage. I mean, it appeared to do so in mice at least. But some of the psychiatrists I spoke with said that, you know, lots of treatments in medicine and, you know, particularly in psychiatry work because, quote, they work. You know, that's what they said, not because we really understand how they work. The reality is, is that we could be decades away from pinning it, pinning it down about what these drugs are actually doing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fascinating story, and I know one that has implications for many, many Canadians. Sharon, as always, thanks for your time. Great. Thanks, Dave. 10.3 is produced by Tyler Dawson. Theme music by Bryce Hall. 
Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirky. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.